0: You might have heard it, there's a saying in show business, there are no small parts, only small actors. No such thing as a small part or a small role to play, but there are small players or small actors who don't choose to play their part to its fullest extent. It's actually a quote from the turn of the 20th century from a a theatre director called Stanislavski. He was known as the father of modern acting. He required those who performed in his theatre, whatever their role, big or small, whether they had lots of lines or no lines at all, to engage fully, to commit themselves to their role fully while on his stage. A good actor or actress would make the best of even the smallest of roles. Stanislavski didn't want any spectators on stage, he wanted players, people fully engaged in the drama. Don't let the size of the part that you play, whether on the stage or in life, determine how well you play the part. In 1 Samuel, I should have a quote there of that. There we go. In 1 Samuel, King Saul's son, Jonathan, is someone who lived up to that motto, to its fullest, well before we ever coined the phrase, Jonathan played second fiddle his entire life. He was never the main actor. He never got to be king. He never got to be leader. He never sat in the first chair of Israel's orchestra of life. He was always playing second fiddle to God, to his own father, and then later, as we'll hear, to David. But he did it so well. He would have been one of the best second fiddlers I know, even if he didn't play the violin. (laughs) The idea of playing second fiddle was actually in the news just yesterday I saw with Nick Kyrgios, believe it or not, that phrase. It's a musical metaphor, isn't it? Not a drama one but a musical one describing the role of someone who's not the main player, they're playing a support role, someone who's not the star of the show but they're there to support the main character, the lead player. And often when we use that term, I have to play second fiddle, there tends to be a little bit of resentment behind it, doesn't there? A little bit of bitterness towards the person in the first chair, thinking, I wish I was in that spot. I reckon I could do a better job. I've done that, playing in the bands that I've played in. Had to play baritone sax at school and always wanted to be the first alto, but I had to play the big, deep, bottom-end bass stuff instead. We tend to think playing second fiddle is not good enough, that we've got to be at the top, that playing second fiddle is a second-rate position, when in fact there's no shame in playing second fiddle at all. And with the help of God, Jonathan shows us how to do it really, really well. I don't know if you've ever been to a live orchestra performance. Even though there's a whole section, actually, of first violins, sometimes up to 10, maybe 15 in a really big orchestra, so there's a whole section of first, first violinists, there's only one person in the first chair, the concert master. And you'll see that person get acknowledged by the conductor and at the end get their own applause at the end of the show. And it's a bit similar to life, isn't it? In a whole orchestra out of 100 people, there's one person in that top role. How many of us ever get to that sort of role? Not many. There's a lot lot of second fiddlers, aren't there? And so I think it will be helpful and instructive for us to see what Jonathan does and to learn from him and how God's worked in Jonathan's life for him to be able to play second fiddle so well. Leonard Bernstein, a great American conductor, he said, I can get plenty of first violinists, plenty of people want to play in the first chair, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. Interesting. Without the second fiddle, there's no harmony Without the second fiddle, the viola, the cellos, the saxophone, whatever it might be, there's only melody. And however tuneful that melody might be, however technically difficult and wonderful and extravagant it could be, if there's no harmony, there's no depth, there's no richness to that tune. And again, it's not just in bands or orchestras where that's true, is it? It's in life as well. At school. At work, at home, sporting teams, how good is it if you're the captain of the team, but you haven't got a team? <laughs> no one to play second fiddle. Pretty pointless, pretty hard to win. Team doesn't work very well if you don't have a leader either, does it? Put more than one person in a room and you need to have a leader, which also means you need someone playing second fiddle. But we don't have to consider that role to be a second rate or second best insignificant role. Nor should we let it reduce or limit our efforts in whatever we're called to do and to be about in life sporting field, music group, or just the drama of life itself. I reckon if John and Jonathan could have played the violin, Bernstein would have been overjoyed to have him in his orchestra or Stanislavski in his theatre. Jonathan played his part so well, fully engaged in his role, fully invested, loyal, faithfully serving God, his father and David along the way. And as we see, God blesses Jonathan in that. And God works, works through Jonathan, using him as an instrument to bring salvation to the people of Israel. We had bits of chapter 14 read to us. We're going to sort of cover a lot of it but one of the best ways to look at it is in contrasting Jonathan and Saul which is I think what the narrator does from last week in chapter 13 and this week in chapter 14. Four scenes. We could probably break it down into more but I'm going to make it four scenes. Last week we had the first one in chapter 13 where Jonathan, remember, had a victory over a small garrison of Philistines. Saul took the credit, remember, let all Israel hear. Saul's defeated the Philistines and then the Philistines responded in force. The Israelite army started running scared. He had thousands of men, Saul did at one point, and he ended up with only 600 and only two swords between them. And Samuel offered some sacrifices which he shouldn't have done, taking matters into his own hands rather than waiting for Samuel as he'd been told to do. So we've got Jonathan's victory with the Lord's help. And Saul's foolishness contrasted to begin with. That's where we left it last week. Now Saul, as I said, with 600 men only and a couple of swords between them to fight the Philistines. The second scene we had read for us this morning where we have Saul staying, sitting. There he is sitting under his pomegranate tree or a pomegranate cave. Take the pick. Um, He's not doing much, just sitting there waiting. Philistines are there about to advance. But what's Jonathan doing? Jonathan's going, he's up and off. He's wanting he's to see whether God will lead him into victory or not. Saul's being passive, Jonathan is being active in faith and action. And to emphasise that contrast even further, to indicate what sort of state Saul is in, we hear about some company that Saul is with. And I don't think it's just incidental. I think the reason the narrator's put it here is to tell us the sort of predicament Saul is in. Did you hear it? We had Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, who was Ichabod's brother, the son of Phineas, son of Eli the priest. Now, why have this whole little family tree mixed in with Saul sitting under the pomegranate tree? Well, this is Ichabod's brother. Does that sound familiar, Ichabod? Can you remember him from back in earlier in 1 Samuel? Ichabod was the son of Phineas and his wife. Phineas died. Remember, the ark was captured. She gave birth early in distress and she mourned and grieved. Why? Because the ark of the Lord had been captured, not just because of the death of her husband, but because the ark of the Lord had been captured. And so she named her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed the glory of the Lord has departed. That's the narrator's not-so-subtle indication here of where Saul is at. Has the glory departed from Saul? Has the Lord actually left Saul to his own devices at this point? That's what it's meant to make us think. Whereas Jonathan, with his (coughs) armour-bearer, Jonathan's been told, the armour-bearer says, "Do do what you choose to do, I am with you, heart and soul. And Jonathan's words... Ah, uh, perhaps the lord will work for us as he's going out in action in faith he says perhaps the lord will work for us very different to perhaps the glory of the lord has departed they say you cannot steer a, a ship that isn't moving saul's not moving here at all he's not looking for god's direction or guidance Jonathan's heart, though, is moving and it's willing to be moved by God, wanting to know where God is going to take him. Only too keen to be steered in the right direction. And have a listen to Jonathan's language here in verse 6. He says, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I reckon that's quite an amazing statement. I think it's a good lesson for us in the language of prayer and for life as we trust God. Come, let us do this. It might be, perhaps, the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan's perhaps here, his, um, his, it might be, it's not a faithless question, He's not questioning God's ability. It's allowing room in his request of God to guide him for God's will to be done. Maybe this isn't the Lord's will, but I pray that he'll show me. I trust that he'll show me. This is a sign of Jonathan's faith. Come on, let's go. Let's see if the Lord will work for us because I know that he can. Jonathan is confident of God's ability to save and he's faithfully going forward and waiting to see whether the Lord will save or not. Saul, on the other hand, is unsure. No, we haven't got there yet. Saul's unsure when the Philistines do get confused because Jonathan has his victory. What does he do? Oh, hang on, let's just see if this is the Lord's will. Go get the ark. Now, we've been there before in Samuel. And even when that happens, and he finally sees the Philistines falling apart, all right, let's just go. And they go into battle. But for Saul, calling on the ark is more procrastination than it is godly piety. Whereas Jonathan's already up and moving. Jonathan is sure that God is able to save and he's asking the Lord to show him at this point whether he's willing to save or not. By few or by many, he's confident in the word of God and he's also confident in the will of God in whatever's to take place. A number of folk actually approached Jesus in the same way, didn't they? The leper in Matthew 8, Lord, if you are willing, if you are willing, You can heal me and make me clean. Confident in God's power and ability in Jesus, if you are willing. The Roman centurion, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word. All you've got to do, say the word, and my servant will be healed. God is able by many or by few. We can be sure that he is able, but we should never presume that he's willing His will doesn't always align with ours, does it? Doesn't mean we don't ask. Doesn't mean we don't persist in prayer. Wrestle with God, with our will and his. But it does mean in the end we pray, Lord, your will be done, not mine. Not in hopeless resignation, but in fearless faithfulness faithfulness to God's will, knowing that his ways are perfect and his works are just. Works are perfect, you know what I mean. And Jonathan sets the stage up here. He says to his armor bearer, if they say this, we'll do that. If not, and the Lord acknowledges that and gives the sign, Jonathan doesn't hesitate and says to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. He's confident because the Lord's given him that sign. He's been guided by the Lord and acknowledges God's work. And he says, it's not for me, this is for Israel. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So we have another victory at the hand of Jonathan. God blesses him. Again, he defeats a garrison of Philistines whilst his father king sitting idly there or finally gets up and moving. But this little victory of Jonathan's gets the cat among the pigeons and all the Philistines get into a right old mess, confused. Remember how many there were last week? 30,000 chariots, a whole lot of other horsemen and other troops, too many to number. And because of Jonathan's little victory here, the whole Philistine army is put into absolute crazy madness. So much so they're against each other. And the Lord defeats the Philistines for Israel that day. How many swords has Israel got? Two. The Lord can save whether by many or by few. And the Lord saved Israel that day, we're told in verse 23. But then as the battle's going on, the Lord's working through the Philistine army in Israel and now Saul's called them all to arms and said, whatever they've got as far as arms go, rushing against the Philistines. But as they're chasing him down throughout the land, Saul says, he makes this rash vow as we've come to know it, he says, right, no one's going to eat anything until this battle is over. Now, battles don't just take the two and a half minutes they might in the latest movies. <laughs> this is long-term stuff. It's at least the whole day, probably longer. And Saul has made this promise, this oath. He says, "It curse be anyone who eats today. Now, he thinks he's rallying his troops and calling them to determination. So, but what's he really done? <laughs> he's given them no energy. They can't replenish their energy for the day. What he thinks is calling the troops and giving them a great pep talk is actually a really stupid idea. Effectively putting Israel and all his men under more pressure with less energy, forbidding them to revitalise themselves even with a drop of honey that Jonathan finds. The soldiers here are severely deprived by Saul's rash vow. Did you watch any of the Commonwealth Games recently? You hear about the marathon runner, Jess Stenson or Jess Trengrove, you might remember her by. She became bronze, she came third place, the last Commonwealth Games and the Commonwealth Games before that. Finally got gold this year. But at the end of the race, she thanked one of her teammates, it's not a team race, but at the end, she realized, halfway through that marathon, she was meant to have a special drink there, caffeinated gel, to keep her going, as they're allowed to do, and hers wasn't there. Another Australian runner gave her hers instead. Her energy revitalised. She said, I would not have finished that race as I did if it wasn't for that. That's exactly what Saul's not doing here for his men, not allowing them to replenish their energies, not letting them eat. Jonathan, on the other hand, does get to eat. He's unaware of his dad's command and his vow. And when he's hungry, he sees some honey on the ground, good natural energy, a land flowing with milk and honey, just for Jonathan. He takes it, eats it, and his eyes become bright. He's rejuvenated. He's energised, he's fueled and ready to fight. All the men had heard Saul's oath... Jonathan hadn't but now that he's eaten the honey they share that information with him and Jonathan says my father's a foolish man because if he had allowed us to eat our victory over the Philistines would have been so much greater than it will be today because of my dad's foolishness. He knows their victory is limited because their men haven't had enough to eat and so hungry, so depleted in energy are they that when they do strike down the Philistines, they pounce on all the spoil and they start eating the meat of the animals right there on the battleground. They're starved, they're famished. And now they're cutting up the meat on the battleground and eating it still with the blood in it. Which Saul, to his credit, noticed and says, we better do something about this. And he makes a way for them to slaughter the animals appropriately and enjoy the plunder. Fourth scene, Saul's foolishness continues. Remember, Jonathan's broken the, the promise or the vow that Saul made and he almost puts Jonathan to death. We heard it, didn't we? Cast lots, Israel, me and my son here, even if it falls on Jonathan, the man whose sin will die. Saul wanted to continue against the Philistines. He was desperate to keep on going, but the Lord would not answer him, wouldn't give him a word, wouldn't give him the direction. In fact, it wasn't Saul. He had no intention of seeking the Lord. It was the priest who said, Shouldn't we inquire of the Lord? Sadly the Lord's out of Saul's mind so much from here on in. The priest says, Let us draw near to God here first. And Saul realizes something's wrong. Someone's broken this vow. Someone has sinned. And Saul pledges in his foolishness, even if it's my son Jonathan, that man will die. Doesn't want to be seen to be going against his word. And just at the point where Saul's about really to execute his own son in front of his men, the men themselves ransom Jonathan. He's spared. Jonathan is spared. They advocate for him. But did you hear what they said? Shall Jonathan die? Jonathan, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? They've seen what he's done. They've seen how God has blessed him. This one who plays second fiddle, about to be knocked off by his own father, he's got to deal with that again later on with a spear that's thrown at him. They see Jonathan as the instrument of their salvation that day and they say to Saul, not a chance, there is no way you are even going to touch a hair on his head for they declare he has worked with God this day. They see the work of God in Jonathan. He has worked with God. Pretty much sums up Jonathan's life, I think, that little phrase. Pretty good epitaph to have on his gravestone, perhaps. He worked with God. Wouldn't mind that on mine. Whereas Saul, his father, well, chapter 14 ends up giving us a bit of a summary, doesn't it? If you've got it there the end of chapter 14 Saul's only halfway through his reign as far as as far as 1 Samuel goes we've still got 15 16 chapters to go but we get this summary as if it's like his midterm report has come in but it's actually the same report as what he's going to get at the end as if to say there's no chance he can improve from here on in he can't change what he's already set in place how does he go as king well Saul actually gets straight A's in one sense When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. He did valiantly and struck the Amalekites. Going to hear about that next week. Didn't quite go as valiantly as he should have. And he delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered him. Saul gets pretty good grades, doesn't he? As far as king goes, as far as a victorious leader of the armies of Israel. And he recruits any strong or valiant men to his own team, maybe to help Israel, but I think more to bolster his own status. Saul was a king who would take for himself. We learnt that earlier on. But as far as fulfilling what the people wanted, we want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles for us. The historic summary here is actually pretty good. But, and it's a big but, God's not looking for worldly achievement is he? He's not looking for historical or military success because God doesn't look on outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Believe it or not, God's not looking for winners. Concert masters, first violinists, first place getters. He's looking for disciples. He's not looking for the elite or the successful or the great achievers as much as he might grant those abilities and gifts to some of us. No, God's looking for sons and daughters of love. He's looking for covenant children who he has redeemed, who he has given new life to and new hope to, children who will humbly trust him and obey him in all that they do. That matters to God so much more than our grades, our achievements, our ATARs, our careers. God is more interested in the heart. And here we have Jonathan working with God and working for God and God himself working with him. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, doesn't he? I can do all manner of great things. I can leap tall buildings in a single bound. I could speak angelic languages. I could even move mountains. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. It counts for nothing. God looks on the heart. The truth of the matter is when it comes to the heart, well, none of us are A-grade students, are we? Or sons and daughters. No man of success or achievement or accolades can make up for that. Only God can change our heart. Only God can give us a new heart. Only by the grace of God can we actually live for his glory, receiving his love and then extending that love out to others and loving him. And God's promised to do that in each and every one of us who turn to him in faith. You see, for all Saul's great might... He failed as king of God's people because he didn't trust God, he didn't listen to the voice of God and didn't obey God. His heart wasn't in it. Whereas Jonathan, second fiddle, son to the king, prospective king but never gets the chance, knows he's never going to get the chance, still faithful, still trusting, God's still at work with him. He worked with God and God with him. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labour is in vain. Unless the Lord works with the king, the king labours in vain. Paul says, I worked harder than all of them. Would have been a great achiever. But it was not I, but the grace of God at work in me. My grace is sufficient for you not your achievements, not your performance, not your report cards. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. By grace you've been saved. Know that one? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. How much does that fly in the face of today's voices? that the world tells us. This is not your own doing. No, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even the greatest first violinists perform under the direction of the conductor, don't they? And all of us live under the direction of our sovereign Lord, under his grace, under his holiness, under his love as he leads us directs us through all the crescendos and decrescendos of life we might face the ups and the downs but as we trust him and look to him for a life for guidance for love just to get up and go with another day he provides for us doesn't he his grace is sufficient his grace is enough for us Jonathan's not the king, he's not the leader, as I said, he plays second fiddle all the way to the end. But he plays it so well, so faithfully. He worked with God and God worked with him. The Lord uses Jonathan to deliver Israel. He's a capable, he's a faithful and patient man. In one one sense, Jonathan is depicted as the ultimate king person if there's anyone who should be king it should be Jonathan but he never ends up there but he never goes and sooks he doesn't leave his bat or take his bat and go home and play no he keeps on fulfilling the part that he's given to play and I think that's what makes it all the more intriguing Jonathan is wonderful king material but the fact that he's never going to be king doesn't stop him living the way that he lives faithfully to all that he serves god his own father and then later david and he's got to walk a pretty fine line in the end with his father and david trying to be loyal to both of them but god provides for him in that too and i think what we're seeing in jonathan we never hear a great conversion experience he doesn't have any great epiphany But I think what we're seeing in Jonathan's life here is a demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit, the work of God in his life. He's given him a heart that loves to do his will and so he's just living that out. The world rarely tells us how to play second fiddle well, does it? If anything, we hear more and more about how to reach the top and stomp on anyone who gets in our way and just keep on going and you'll get there. And our own flesh, our sinful nature... (laughs) We don't like to play second fiddle too often, do we? Some people never want the spotlight. But even there, sometimes we want to lead where we're not in the spotlight. But one of the major themes throughout this whole book of 1 Samuel, remember Hannah's prayer, her song, how the Lord brings low and he exalts. He raises up the humble and brings down the exalted. There's some of you here who may get the chance to play first fiddle in life. You may reach the top. You may be elite. You may be a, have wonderful success. You might end up being the star of the show. God does that for some people. We need leaders who can lead well, Christian leaders who can lead well in whatever parts of life. And I reckon in the best of those people, the Lord also gives the gift of humility because so often, even if they've got to that point trusting God, when they get there, the pressure and temptation of fame and glory means they come crumbling down and forget the Lord all too soon. So pray for those you know who are in high positions because it's tricky to keep on trusting the Lord like Jonathan does, to be a person of integrity and humility and faithfulness when there's fame and fortune and glory there and all the world at your feet. Pray that they would continue to humbly give thanks to God, recognise that he has worked in them, his grace at work in them, even as they work hard themselves. But just to finish this morning, most preachers, as we prepare, we always ask, where's Christ in this chapter? How do we preach Christ here? Well, I think it's in Jonathan again. I think Jonathan gives us a glimpse of another son, the son of a father, who faithfully serves, who humbles himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. Jonathan's a great example of someone who plays second fiddle, isn't he? But in Jesus we have not just an example but the epitome of one who is faithful and humble and comes to serve, not to be served. Not because he was never good enough to be in the first spot, actually because he was there and deserved to be there rightfully at the Father's right hand, but humbled himself. Emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Hannah's prayer fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The one who is king of kings and lord of lords humbled himself, what the theologians call the great condescension of God, so that we might be raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Stanislavski said there's no small parts only small actors we're not here with the gospel of drama or theater or great conductors are we we're here with the gospel of christ and i think there's a similar more a superior saying in the new testament we're all members of the one body in christ and in the body of christ there are no small parts are there we don't all have the same function he's chosen each of us he's given us grace and faith according to his will And whether we're playing second fiddle or first or whether we're playing the triangle, I don't care. Whether we're a hand or an eye, an ear, a foot, whether we've got gifts of serving, teaching, administrating, contributing in whatever other way, each of us that I love and serve with our whole heart, giving glory to God and encouraging the rest of the body. There are no small parts in the body of Christ, whatever our part, we're to be fully engaged in the life that God's given us, the life of his kingdom. God doesn't just use the best and the brightest, does he? The tallest and the strongest. In fact, all the way through scripture, what do we learn? God often uses the biggest losers. He uses the weak, the least, and raises them up for his glory so that our boast is not in ourselves but in him. I trust that's your experience and how you've seen God at work in your life, that in your weakness, his power is made perfect and that you too can say, God has worked salvation for me and that God is actually using you for his great divine purposes. And if that's not you, then maybe this morning you could ask the Lord that it would be so for you today. Like Jonathan said, it might be, it may be that the Lord will work for you, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Let's pray. Father God, at one level we read these chapters and there's a lot of human things going on. There's a father and a son, there's a battle, there's weary men. There's promises made. There's victory and there's defeat. There's wisdom and foolishness. But Father, behind that, above that and through it all, we see your hand at work. That phrase that comes through time and time again through these chapters, the Lord has worked salvation. Maybe the Lord will work for us. The Lord has delivered us. Father, as we live our lives, we pray that we would not just see the things on the surface. We would not just look to the things of the world and look for the success and achievement that the world wants us to strive for. But Father, you'd give us eyes of faith and hearts of faithfulness towards you. We cannot do that on our own. And so, Father, we pray by your grace you would so work in us and through us and for us, as you've promised, that we would live our lives to your glory and not to our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.